How did authors fight for rights through the economic and social upheavals of the 80s and 90s? Why did it sometimes end in conflict with each other? And how did the NZSA provide support and encouragement for its members? I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast where we dive deep into the archives to hear New Zealand authors tell their story of living as a writer in Aotearoa. Morris Edmund was a New Zealand poet, novelist and editor who also wrote for radio and the stage. In 1999, just months before her death, she sat down with Alison Gray in what may be her last interview. Loris began by talking about how she suddenly found herself part of a move to force Prime Minister Robert Muldoon out of Penn, New Zealand. I can't actually remember exactly how it happened, but um, I was catapulted into the writing community, in a way, uh, because I, my own writing career was so strange, I began to publish and then published a great deal very quickly, and I was already 50, so uh, I felt new and yet not new, and everything that happened I was enormously interested in. and. Um, quite quickly somebody must have said did I want to come to a pen meeting and I was interested in the political side of it, it was very much the teachers union uh, and yes I did and I very quickly became a member of the executive and I and I felt it to be a genuine union oh. matter, it's not like that now, the Society of Authors has that aspect uh, and it does I suppose you can call it political battling that they fight for rights and mm-hmm. um, you know anthology fees and that sort of thing. But um, this felt much more political. Like that, uh, I can remember us being very indignant when um, what was it that Muldoon had done? I mean, Muldoon generally seemed like uh, you know the enemy, mm-hmm. as of course he was, uh, and he was very overbearing about writers. And was it that he published a book? can't honestly remember what it was, but uh, uh, perhaps he'd made a statement about about what writers were doing, and he did say some very insulting things. Um, and we got very worked up and decided that we would, uh, he, he couldn't be a member, we would cancel his membership. I don't think that would happen now. It isn't the same political climate at all, and it might seem absurd, but, but it seemed very important. Mm. Um, I remember there was a huge row about... Um, Conditions under which writers joined the writers, the, the writers' guild, which right. was not the same thing. It was to do with, uh, and it still is to do with scriptwriters mm-hmm. and people writing drama. And there was something here again. I can't tell you the details, but there was something in the conditions of agreement that we decided was politically unsound. Tony Simpson was involved, and he, of course, is a very mm-hmm. political animal. Uh, Beeb was on it at the time, oh. old Dr. Beebe, and he was on the side of the uh, the law, and we were all against it. And there was a, there were stand-up speeches. And really? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. There was, uh, there were, and um, 
I can't remember what action we did. I think it was just a matter of making a protest. Mm. And every now and then we rewrote letters to the paper about freedom of speech and so on. So it was, mm. uh, it, it, it's when, when I say those things, although I can't tell you enough detail, I can see that it belonged to a political climate that we absolutely don't have mm. now. Mm. Um, I mean, you could say, although it wasn't directly to do with employment, that. Uh, since the Employment Contracts Act and since the whole system yeah. of, of shutting down opposition, yeah. uh, which we all so dislike, um, mm. that that is gone, but it wasn't so. And so, uh, and there was also a connection with international pen, which was politically active over freedom of um, freedom of opinion, and and writers in various parts of the world being incarcerated. And I was quite involved in that. I went to um, I went to a pen congress in Sydney uh, with Bruce Mason, and we spent quite a bit of the time there, uh, s uh, making speeches about whether, for instance, the uh, the Soviet uh, Writers Union should be admitted because uh, would it be a gesture of yeah. support or would it be a gesture of acceptance yeah. of, of that <laughs> regime, um, and. And Bruce and I spent quite a lot of time, you know, earnestly concocting the New Zealand point of view and feeling, you know, that we were doing something of international importance. Um, and then, and I was involved in another way. It's quite curious to think of now. Um, Michael King had been a representative of New Zealand PN at a congress, I'm not sure where, somewhere in Europe, I think, some years before. Or perhaps not long before. In 1977, I was going to be in Europe, and he had made an approach to uh, a Czech, well, uh, indirectly, he'd made an approach to the Czech Writers' Union, which of course was under Soviet mm. rule at that time, um, and suggested that we, and came back and suggested it to us that we should invite a Czech writer, um, Fatulik, his name was. Uh, a Czech novelist to be an honorary member of New Zealand mm. PEN. Uh, and I was going to Czechoslovakia, I knew Ian Milner very mm. well, uh, and I was going to be there. So I was told, asked, you know, given the job of um, getting in touch with this person, if I could, Ludwig Vatulik, that was his mm. name, um, and and bringing a message from New Zealand Pen and getting a reply perhaps and you know uh, expressing our support for his his cause because Czech writers uh, like all of the Eastern European writers were under severe stress they could only publish yeah. you know outside the country. I had um, a friend in in England who was Ian Milner's estranged wife Margot Milner. And she had spent a lot of time in Czechoslovakia, and she gave me the address and, and, mm -hmm. a, and a letter of, uh, of introduction to somebody called George Mucha, who was the son of, do you know the Alphonse Mucha um, paintings? Oh, those, yes. ra those rather dreamy, yes. Raphaelite women. Uh, well, George Mucha was his son, and he had been a Czech mm -hmm. artist, and, mm -hmm. uh, and his son was, um, was living there. And, uh, and had a, a, a rather privileged position in, in Czechoslovakia at the time. He was known to be against the regime, but he was tolerated. And to some extent that was Ian Milner's position too. But they were very careful. Whenever I talked to Ian, 
we, he said we had to drive around in a car so that we couldn't be uh, listened to. I went to see George Mocker and he said um, he knew what it was about and he, was, he wasn't gentlemanly, he was quite fierce with me and he said I was not to talk about it. I was to write down a little bit and give it to him on paper and then we would go outside. So the being bugged and, and listened to was real. Um, and I did that. Uh, and then we did go outside and talk about it. And he said, well, he didn't put it in these words. These are my words, but this was the tone of it. What do you think you are doing in that country? What's this sending messages like this? He's in hiding outside Prague. The worst thing you can do is try and dig him out and, and, and expose him and then say, we see, and we've got messages of goodwill from New Zealand. What are you on about? I felt really mortified, I must say. I did absolutely nothing about it. I just tiptoed away um, and came back and you know gave a report yeah. to New Zealand. Ben, we were simply naive. We were a little country a long way away and we were we were being very ingenuous. Um, that is hard to imagine yes. now too, yes. isn't it? It's amazing. It is amazing, yes. Yeah. Gosh. Um, and this would have been in the uh, it was 1977. 77. Yes, 77. mid-70s, yes. It was the year of the charter, the, the 77 charter, uh -huh. which was a declaration of, of human rights, and a lot of people had signed it. It was quite a major document, mm. and, and uh, Fatshilek was one of the people. Oh, right. Lots of people had signed it, but they were, uh, you know, they were in hiding. Um, and, you know, when you, when you think about it now, when you look at the present... Um, fighting with, uh, with the Chechen mm -hmm. rebels, as they are called, yeah. you see how savage mm. oh. that regime could be, don't you? Yeah. It's still. shocking. Well, still still is. Yes. Still is. Yeah. I mean, why single them out, the savagery all around <laughs> the world, isn't there? Yeah. But um, there's a particular sort of ruthlessness, isn't there? Yeah. Um, I was there um, early in the year in 77. I was there for May Day. Uh -huh. uh, and there was a May Day parade, and I and, and a lot of other people sort of hid in doorways, and tanks came roaring around, and there was a big military display. Uh, so I was fairly, um, fairly nervous, and it gave me, um, well, this strange, only half real insight to our connection with the whole. Uh, the whole international community and the question of freedom of speech. What happens now is that PN does have a person who writes letters of protest. Mm. I mean, we keep mm. it going, but it's all, I think, much more a kind of bureaucracy. Yes. Now you just write letters at certain times and mm. report to meetings. Mm. It felt much more raw mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my my my, my biggest drama. <laughs> yes, yeah. uh, I did go to other pen things. I went to a pen congress in Dijon, um, and again these issues were were very much talked about. I didn't have anything much to do with it. I just listened and you mm -hmm. know felt felt involved. Um, I don't know if much at the moment about international pen. What I do know about ours and other people can tell you more about this than me is that at a certain point we became the Society of Authors mm. Incorporating Pen. Um, and that, I guess it followed the, the movement of the times. That became much more 
um, I mean, rights and um, the economics of it. I mean, mm. we've, we live in a finance mm. culture, don't mm. we, now? Mm. And it became much more to do with that. And the only reason that I don't, I, I'm a member, of course, but I'm not, I haven't been on the executive for a long time. <coughs> what I go to them for is, is a bit of information about rights or fees or right. something like that. that yes. yeah. Which has always been its job and still is. So, and that, you were involved at a national level? Yes. In the early days, yes. yes. Did they have the Wellington branch set up then? It wasn't, no. no the national wasn't. executive was was the mm. national executive and it was yeah. here. Yeah. Oh, right. Um, and Who were the, the personalities around at that time? Well, Beeb was one. Yeah. Um, Tony Simpson was one. Fiona was one and I was. Um, let me think. A woman... Who lived in Kilburn has since died. Mm. Um, can't think of her name. There were there were one or two people. She was one. I'm sorry, I can't remember mm. her name. But there was one or two people who really were. Um, they st they were. They hung on after their time, and uh -huh. they belonged to a kind of organisation that was quite different again. Uh, it was quirky and a bit fey and there were these rather elegant sort of blue stocking literary ladies who had uh, uh, long graceful conversations about, <laughs> about uh, their, their writing and women, the Women Writers um, Association or whatever it's yes. called was quite strong there mm -hmm. and they were part of, of of women writers and women writers, well it's disbanded now, but yeah. uh, that I think too became much more assertive later on, but the tone of, of that earlier pen and we could feel it through these people and in fact people like Fiona and I used to laugh our heads off, it was <laughs> so funny. They were sort of, they, they were um, waffly yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I think of them as wearing trailing clothes, I don't <laughs> suppose they did really, but, but that was how yeah. it felt. And it was like it was like reading about you know literary people in some sort of side room in a, a Bloomsbury or something. Yes, it sounds very Bloomsbury. Sort of English, English flavour yes. about it. And they weren't very political though. No, no. no. So it took a group they of weren't. you to come in mm. and become more mm. political I think than so. they were. Yes. Yeah. What about um, issues relating to income, trying to get New Zealand publishers to be fair to writers? Was that an issue for you then? It was always there. It was the union, and mm -hmm. it was always there. Um, I don't remember being involved in, or, or meetings being concerned with battles over that, but they must have been. Um, yes, and I think that I th that's, that's much more virulent now. Mm. Uh, and of course, you know, we're in a different um, employee-employer relationship. relationship climate, aren't we? Yes. But um, I think there were there were times when there were protests made, or or, or pen. Yes, there were. Pen would represent uh, a writer, and you could you could mm -hmm. go to them, oh. and they would work for you as your union. Mm. I can't remember any particular details about that, but yeah, it was there. It was there mm. too, mm. and and um, authors fund. The Authors Fund began in my time. Mm -hmm. It was uh, was dreamed up by Ian Cross, mm -hmm. and um, he had been a president of Penn earlier, 
and he'd worked very hard for it, and it was a great, it was a great deal of excitement mm. about it. Um, I mean, it's still yes. highly valued. And <laughs> it's the only real solid bit of money that mm. you feel you get towards the end of the year. Um, so I can only tell you that we were very interested in it. I was on the author's front for a short time. Uh-huh. Um, but I, th- I must have been going away somewhere. In those years, I travelled a lot, and I had my year... Of, you know, my complete mm. year away in Montreal. And it was only for a very short time. I only went to three or four meetings because somehow my year wasn't complete. Mm-hmm. It was just a matter of, you know, administering it. I don't remember any particular policy issues, except that yeah. we always wanted the, the, the unit amount to be <laughs> larger. That's what we've always wanted. <laughs> and there was a change, wasn't there, um, with about from the Lit Fund to the Arts Council yes. to Creative New Zealand? Is that, have you followed that? Yes, to some extent. Um, it was much... It, it's been all downhill, mm-hmm. as far as... Uh, that's my perception. Um, when it was the Lit Fund in Internal Affairs, mm-hmm. you had a lot more access to it, and, and we, we, being writers, had far more mm-hmm. representation, and right. we felt that we did. Uh, and we knew the people, and we would we could talk to the people who were making representations, and so it felt like, um, it felt as though our voice was heard. When it went into, um, when it became part of the Arts Council, we believed that 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 was going to go on and be the same, and we were disillusioned. Um, I do remember going to, uh, to see them, and this was when they were, uh, it they were it had become the arts council. It hadn't become this crazy thing, creative <laughs> New Zealand. I was still called the arts council. And right at the beginning of New Zealand Books, John and I went to see it, uh, went to see them as a sort of deputation, Rosemary Wildblood and one or two other people, because we wanted a bit of a setting up grant for New Zealand Books, and New Zealand Books began, I don't know if you want me to talk about this, but mm, it began with no capital at all. Um, and then there's an interesting contrast in that at the time that John and I were, were dreaming this up, um, quote-unquote mm. was starting with with very different premises. They began at the, at the, in a sense, I mean, the concept began at the same time, but they didn't actually begin to publish for two years, and we started to publish straight away. And our capital was just that John and I went round, anybody we thought had $500 and mm. said, be a founder and give it to us. And so we had a very small capital. Um, and but you, you, I, I need to I need to say that we were aware of this this other one at this point because when we went to see the Arts Council, Andrew Campbell was some I think he was doing a job as uh, he was between publishing mm-hmm. uh, positions uh, and he was doing feasibility studies and he and a feasibility study had been done about us and about quote unquote. Um, and we wanted to uh, we wanted to ask for the setting up grant. In the end, uh, and they listened, and they were very um, uh, apparently enthusiastic. And John and I were terribly convincing. We <laughs> thought, and all felt wonderful. We were prof- 
profoundly disillusioned when they said that the small amount of money that they had, and we knew it was small, they were going to spend to do another feasibility study. I mean, this is now horribly familiar, but it mm. wasn't familiar then. There had been one. It absolutely didn't need to be spent on that, and we said it's small, but it would be a great help to us. Um, I think now, and I've often thought so since, that it's uh, the, you know, this whole managerial mm -hmm. disease that has attacked us. Often those uh, that sidestepping into something mm -hmm. like that is just ignorance. They mm -hmm. didn't know anything about it and they didn't want to want to know, didn't want to make up their minds, so they, so they did that. Mm -hmm. So all the money went. Oh, we were so fed up about <laughs> We really were. But anyway, um, that was that was the beginning, I suppose, of um, uh, well, our realization that the voice we had was had gone, mm -hmm. was well on the way to going. Once it became um, Creative New Zealand and the uh, the individual granting of uh, of whatever it was grants. Um, uh, became a matter of competing with the with the yeah, yeah. other other arts, mm. uh, and there were no uh, precise literary representatives. There were just advisors mm. on things. Well, by the time that happened, we felt we'd lost our, our voice altogether, and I think that that's what everybody still feels. Mm. I do. Mm. Mm. Um, I also think, you know, it's more of the same. It's a pervasive climate. It's not just in, in the arts. You feel particularly angry and powerless because, you know, this is where I work, but um, but it's not very different from lots yes. of other places. Other places. Other places all around, all around us, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it is, it's tough, isn't it? Mm. Were you around at the London flat time? Yes, indeed, <laughs> I was. Tell me about that. Well, um, what happened first was that Michael Bassett invited six writers to go and talk to him about this offer. The offer was from um, an old gentleman in the Bay of Plenty called Dudley Kelly who had built this beautiful house um, and he wanted to offer it to the nation and he's a, a sweet old thing. He writes a little himself. He had already, it's on an island, just just near a Hopi. So he had to go across by boat. Um, he had wanted to do this for a long time and he had already begun to use it. He had a grand piano there and he sometimes had musicians who mm -hmm. came and stayed for a while. And it was capable of housing all kinds of people. Small groups could have gone, individuals could have gone. It was a big, it was his life's dream, that house and he'd been building it for a good part of his life. Um, it had space around, it had garden and, you know, plenty of room. Um, and it could have, it was just a wonderful idea and it could have worked. What Michael Bassett did was to uh, get this opinion. Um, I was one of the six writers, but I was away somewhere, so I didn't go. Um, I can't remember who all the others were. Margaret Mahi was one. I have an idea that she was away too and didn't go. Carl Stead mm. was one, and Carl Stead and Michael Bassett had been to school together, mm -hmm. and they knew each other very well. Um, I don't know if Fiona was one. 
I think she must have been. Anyway, very quickly, Fiona and I began to get involved in, in together in, in this. I went to see Michael Bassett um, when I came back and I said, you know, I wanted, I'm sorry that I missed it, but I wanted to be involved and I thought it was a wonderful idea. But I couldn't get anything out of him. He more or less said, well, you know, have a glass of wine and how nice to see you. Nothing to say on the subject. And from then on, it was increasingly a, a quite fierce battle. Yeah. Uh, we could hear nothing, we could get nothing from him. Uh, eventually, there was news in the paper, uh, which we were frightfully indignant about. And, and only very gradually did we discover that, um, that Carl Stead had said after that initial meeting of the half dozen writers, they'd gone off to the pub and they'd all talked about it again then. He'd said, um, he, was, he was the person who was asked to go and look at it. And he'd said, well, we don't want that. I won't go and look at that. I'll go back to Auckland and talk to some of my mates. We really want something better than that, don't we? We want a flat in London and we could be there. What are we going to do? An island? You've got to go across my pond. What do we want that sort of thing for? I, I feel furious even now talking yeah. about it. Yeah. It was so elitist. Yeah. Uh, it was... It, um, it absolutely wiped Dudley Kelly's original idea. Well, you know, it, it reduced it mm. to um, nothing. Um, Michael Bassett, incidentally, had said that he had, well, I don't suppose he put it like this, but he had a big slush fund and he could afford this. So it, the, the mm. initial proposition could have been accepted. That was clear to us all the time. And it was clear to Stead, who is one of the people who would have uh, paid sabbatical leave and would be yes. able to, uh, yes. to, to be in, in a flat in London. Our idea, Fiona's and mine, and, and eventually lots of other people, was that this would be available to young writers, mm. writers mm. with families, people mm. who didn't have anything much going for them, like most of us. They could go by bus for three months or something. Yeah. You know, there were lots of possibilities. Yeah. And it was a beautiful place. Um, when we finally learnt what was happening, we got um, we got a press release issued, and we got a lot of signatures. We rang writers all around yeah. the country uh, to get them to 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 stand up for what seemed a real cause. That is the writers it was for, not for a few university teachers who were well off anyway. And why Bloomsbury? Are we in the thirties? You know. <laughs> This is where the centre of our, our cultural yeah. life is, surely. I discovered somewhere during this time that uh, Stead and Bassett were hatching this in secret. He had also said, Stead had said to Bassett, well, um, what's his wife's name? Kay is going to Australia. She could look in Sydney and it might be quite good too. And so she'd yeah. had a look at real estate in Sydney. That never came to anything and it never became public, but that was one of the things that happened. And then, of course, uh, he found the, the, the Bloomsbury place. Um, the, the result of the protest that we set up was extremely disappointing. Some things happened that were good. Vincent, for instance, uh, went to the Official Information Act and got some correspondence between Stead and Bassett, which was very useful. And there was a... Um, what was the name of the, uh, the investigative 
um, TV programme that Ross Stevens used to do. Oh, yes. Um, I can't think of its name. Um, what was it called? Insight? Was it Insight? I don't think it was Insight. But anyway, that programme mm -hmm. was the result of that, and they did expose this. And I went and talked to them, and Fiona mm -hmm. talked to them, and various people did. Um, but once it got into the media, instead had had, had got together a group of blokes, yep. Moll Shadbolt, and <laughs> I don't know, Morris is the only one's name I can mm. remember now, but a group of blokes who, who supported him. And and the way the media eventually presented it was that writers are a quarrelsome lot. Mm. And, mm. You know, they give them, don't ever give them anything. Look at the way they go on mm. about it, they just squabble. Mm. Which seemed yes. such an outrage, yes. such an outrage. Um, and that's how it f mm. well, you know how it nothing finished. happened. Uh, nothing happened. They bought the flat. It was never used. Uh, Stead had offered himself to Bassett as the first occupant. Surprise, surprise. It was part of this correspondence. Uh, it was never used because, of course, there was a change of government and it was sold at a great loss. Um, the money went back into the into government coffers. Dudley couldn't wait indefinitely and set, sold his house to somebody else. I don't know who's got it. He just, he's, but he sold it. He, he lives in Ohopi now. His wife has died. and uh, He could have been there because she was mm -hmm. nervous about going across. And it was really his baby, but none mm. of that has, has happened. Um, I don't know how people feel about it now, but I had a, a letter from somebody and some hate mail from Stead, mm. Stead's family. One of his daughters wrote, wrote me a couple of ferocious hate letters. Um, uh, and I had a letter just, just a few months ago mm. from a woman saying, why was it mm. that you and Fiona Kidman were so against all writers? Mm. And why did you want to spoil their chances and wreck things for them? This is mm. what I hear. I'm a writer who's just sort of beginning, and this is the story that I hear in Auckland. Oh, still, yeah. still. So, you know, I wrote and gave her the history. I didn't hear back from her again. Um, I talked to Fiona and she said, well, yeah, tell her the facts, but don't <laughs> let's spend too much time on yeah, it. Yeah. We both felt so profoundly mm. disillusioned by the whole thing. Mm. It had taken enormous toll on us, mm. really, a lot of time and a lot of um, emotion. I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but just to remind you that through advocacy, professional development programs, information, competitions, awards and mentorships, advisory and consultancy services, the NZSA is the professional organisation for New Zealand writers to receive fair reward and the right to protect their copyright. As a representative body, the NZSA lobbies for the rights of all writers in New Zealand. Visit authors.org.nz to find out more about membership. Now let's return to Loris, who, along with Fiona Kidman, had her own fight on her hands trying to secure a writer's residency in New Zealand. 
Alison Gray asked her whether this affected her own writing life and career. Not really, I don't Didn't. think. No, my situation was that I had, um, without knowing I was doing it, I had waited forever to get going on my writing and I just went ahead and did it. And right. Did it full tilt all yeah. the time. <laughs> and um, I enjoyed this because everything was new to me. It was a new life in every way and being involved with other writers and uh, and with pen was enormously interesting yeah. to me and I loved it. Yeah. But it wasn't anything to do with how I, I wrote. Right. I had a sort of... Um, a bit of a conflict with myself, I suppose, about how you, how, and if you write political poetry in the more general sense, and um, but that's not the same thing, mm. no. And I decided that, you know, on the whole, you couldn't do it. At least it was hard for us to do it here because um, we didn't have a situation like the Czechs or the South mm. Africans, mm. and where, where. Or, or, the, or the Chileans under Neruda, when, when Neruda was writing. Politics was their sort of mm. universal subject, it wasn't like mm. that for us. Mm. Um, but, I, you know, I wrote politically a bit. My poem about the neutron bomb is, yeah. a, is a, yeah. a political poem. And what about um, publishers' commitment to write, New Zealand writing? How has that changed over the time? Do you think that's um, to New Zealand publishing? What was it like when you first were involved with him over the last um, 20, 30 years? Yes. When you first wrote him? It has changed. There again, I think it's changed in along with every other industry. When I began, my first book went to... Oh, it didn't go to Oxford. My first two books went to... Um, Pegasus Priest in Christchurch. Oh, right. um, that was really through Dennis Glover who, who recommended that to Albion Wright, who was a friend of his. Um, and then I think Pegasus Priest came to an end and Albion died and I went mm. to Oxford and I was with Oxford for many years um, under various editors and in fact it felt like home. Yeah. Uh, and. And then, of course, that came to an end, and Oxford moved from uh, Wellington to Auckland, mm -hmm. as publishers all did. Mm -hmm. That didn't by itself change it, because uh, my relationship was with Anne French when mm -hmm. they were their editor for a long time. Um, but in the, in the end, it changed a great deal, and eventually Oxford closed down mm. its poetry publishing altogether. And now I'm working with Oxford again this year because mm. I'm doing an anthology of love poetry for them, New Zealand love poetry. What happens in the middle of it? They closed down the, most yes. of their New Zealand operation and moved to Melbourne, um, which I think is mad as a publishing decision, but that's what they've done. Um, and. So the the centralising and the and the sort of moving into big big mm, mm. outfits up at the top that's gone on. I then moved to a university press, Auckland University Press, and that's where my where I am now. But of course, um, I I maintained another relationship with Bridget, mm. um, a, a very fascinating one, um, because she I, I I encountered her first when she worked for Oxford. Then she became the first of her small publishers. Yes. She, she published my novel. I wrote a novel right. um, on, early in the 80s. I say I'm going to do another one, but I haven't done it yet. <laughs> but I did do that one, and Bridget published it. And then um, 
she published each of the volumes of my autobiography and then the single one. And then, much more recently, she published um, a selected poems yes. and uh, along with the, um, the, the Matter of Timing, the latest volume. Um, and by that time, she was in with AUP herself. Yes. Her publishing history is absolutely fascinating. It's not my story, she, mm. could, she could tell you, but it's enormously interesting. Because she's wanted to be a small publisher, and she's tried again and again, and she's been taken over, or she's joined bigger ones. Um, she is still interested in doing it, and I think mm. she's got some, some new ideas about how to do it. Uh, and so she's gone back to being a small publisher again. And I am working on another anthology, and that is with her now. So oh, that right. relationship has gone on in just the same way, and we are great friends. And you know, so really she's stayed committed to New Zealand publishing. She has. She been. has. Mm. What I think is happening in publishing is that smaller publishers are beginning to appear mm. um, as the the big ones get more and more connected with the multinationals, squeeze out their staff, uh, make everything uh, you know, out not in-house. Um, there are more and more people, particularly poetry writers, mm. who have nowhere to go because poetry is the first casualty when they start to retrench. Um, and there, is, there are a number of small publishers starting. In a way, it's like the 30s. When I was doing my work on Fairburn, uh, the Fairburn Letters, um, which was sort of my, before I'd published anything of my own, that was my first literary job, I suppose you'd call it. Um, and and I, so I, I got a very strong feeling of what it was like in the 30s where you had to do it in a very small way or you had to, be, or else you had to go to England or you, you had to, you know, you, had, you didn't have uh, a place to be uh, New Zealand publishing or New Zealand writing. In some ways, the, the, the mass of backward steps that I think the finance culture is making us make is, is, mm. is, is towards some of that. Yeah, yeah, I do think that. It's just, um, I mean, you, you might think it's silly as a theory. Lots of people wouldn't agree with it. But in publishing and in writing, there's a distinct feeling that, that people, if they are um, aberrant, if they write unfashionably, and poetry is never mm. fashionable, if they, uh, if they don't make, cut a big dash, because there's a lot of publicity and advertising and so on, um, if they don't pick up on one of the, um, one of the theories yeah. that the Arts Council has gone, that, you know, this is new and so this is amazing and we'll make mm. a fuss about it, and often they're wrong, um, those people are, are nowhere, and that's re very much how it felt reading about Fairburn and Mason and mm -hmm. those people in mm -hmm. the in the thirties and forties. And yet now look at them, they're mainstream, aren't they? Mm -hmm. oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So for you, you've always found a home, no? I always have. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and I suppose that's um, that's luck, but actually it isn't quite luck. Perhaps luck never is just luck. I think it's because, um, I didn't think this at the time, but I've come to think that there were great advantages about beginning to publish when I was already sort of halfway through my life and had lived one whole life. And so mm. I think that I had um, probably a kind of authority in myself and mm. in my writing that you couldn't have mm. at, at 20. And, um, I felt terribly left behind at the <laughs> beginning and wondered what on earth I'd been doing all my life. Um, 
but I don't think that now. And I think that meant that um, I could strike up relationships. They were personal as well mm. as publishing, but they were genuine professional ones. And I mm. think that was it was probably easier for me because mm. I was older. And although I didn't think I knew anything about what I was doing as a writer, because you never do, but um, yeah. but really I did have a sort of confidence yeah. that you can't have when, yeah. when you're young. You've been listening to Loris Edmund and Alison Gray on the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. If you like this podcast, please take a minute to like and subscribe or leave a review. It helps others find the NZSA. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby MacLeod for the New Zealand Society of Authors with funding from Creative New Zealand. Notturno by Ottorino Respighi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. The audio was digitised and provided by the Alexander Turnbull Library. I'm Karen Hay and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. <laughs>